Hey, Jill told me to say that. That's not my fault. Sorry. Although Jill didn't say be mean about it either. So, okay, you can you know find your seat. I'm so excited to be here. I'm supposed to introduce myself because Jill doesn't like to talk. I'm Andy Stearns. Yes. This is great. Uh, Oh, my. There's students here. Um, I'm Andy Stearns, and I teach down at the college at Faith Baptist Bible College, and I teach a class on introduction to Bible study. And Jill asked if I would do some stuff about Bible study and devotions today. So today we're going to study how to study, and we're going to study maybe how to do Bible study in a way that would help your devotions out. Um, I'd like to start off by saying a sentence I never thought I would say in my entire life. I'm excited to be at the ladies' retreat. <laughs> Someone told me Stephen Moore already said that, so I'm, I'm late to the punch. But this is actually my second ladies' retreat I've been to. My wife came up and volunteered five years ago, and Dave Callison saw me, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm just hanging out up here, and he's like, I'm putting you to work. <laughs> so I did something for him. So, Okay, uh, we're going to go ahead and we'll open in prayer, and then I'll give you a quick overview of what we are going to do. So maybe I'll wait for just a moment while we're milling about. We're going to, um, I'm going to present to you a method of Bible study that I think is the most helpful and beneficial way to study the Bible. And it is, I'm passionate, if you want to use that word, I'm convinced, I'm committed, I really believe this, because in my own life, I didn't study the Bible this way for many, many years, and I reaped the, um, like, not the benefits, I reaped the consequences of treating the Bible this way. So today, I'd like to help you to see maybe a different way to do it. You may already do it this way. That's okay, because I think this will help you to refresh and maybe even remember some stuff that you had forgotten. So let's go ahead and we'll open up in prayer, and then we'll get going. Father, we love you. Thank you for today, Lord. I pray that you would bless our time that we have together now, Lord. I pray that you would help me to be clear as I speak. And I pray that those who are here would work hard to pay attention. Father, I pray that you would renew the way we think about studying your word. In your son's name we pray, amen. So uh, usually we take a whole semester to talk about Bible study down at the college. So I decided there's two ways I could go about this. I could try to condense, like boil it down to like the most essentials. But if you've ever taken like a sauce and tried to boil it down too far, it burns. I think that would happen. (laughs) So I'm going to give you like the briefest overview. And then I want to camp out for a while on the part of Bible study that I think we miss uh, the most often that I think is the most critical. And I want to do that by beginning to tell you about two Bible verses and two applications. So this is like a personal testimony time. The setting is somewhere at a Bible study far, far away, (laughs) in another galaxy. (laughs) Uh, I was in a youth group. I was a leader, and I was working with a youth pastor, and he had us do this thing he called Lexio Divina. It's like a kind of a Catholic Bible study practice from the Middle Ages. Um, What he wanted us to do is to really get deep. And so this is what he did. He said, I want you all in the youth group to break out into different places in the church. I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to read one verse over and over and over and over again. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to think about it. I want you to listen to what God is telling you. 
And so I went off and I did the Bible chapter roulette, or not that because we don't gamble, uh, you know, <laughs> opened my Bible and boom, I'm in Ephesians 5 verse 1 and this is the verse I studied. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And so for a half hour, I read and I reread and I read it over and over and over again. What does it mean to be? I mean, it's very existential. <laughs> what does it mean to imitate? What does it mean uh, to do this as a loved child? Hmm, imitating. What does it mean if you imitate you know, something that's wrong about God, or something that's like, what, do you, what if you're imitating the wrong thing? Sorry, i got to move my mic here. So I came back after the half hour, and he said, let's share what God told us. Like, how did God speak to you? And so we were going around the room, and I said, well, I, I read this verse, and I realized that I need to imitate God. And I actually think I might be imitating some wrong things in my life, trying to be like stuff that I shouldn't be like. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you, as a Bible study teacher, I just hit a home run. Like, knocked it out of the park, but I'm not a baseball player. It was like a lucky swing. I mean, I got totally lucky. Let me explain why. I had the same preparedness to study the Bible as my buddy. And he opened the Bible and landed on this verse, Obadiah 7. <laughs> All your allies will force you to the border... Your friends will deceive you, and they will overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And so he, like, he's like a little sweaty looking when he's getting ready to talk. I'm not, this is not, a, like, I'm not making, the, I'm maybe not, not making this up at all. Like, I, I'm pretty sure this is how it happened. I'm, like, very confident. And he's just a little, you know, I'm like, okay, such and such, why don't you tell? He's like, well... I really feel like God's, he's trying to tell me my friends are going to get me. <laughs> and I have no idea, and I just, I wonder which one my friends are going to get me. And all of us are like, if, if this over here is a home run, this is like three strikes and you lose the baseball game. Like, this is like the, the guy who's running for a touchdown and turns around to celebrate and drops the ball at the one-yard line, and they lose the Super Bowl. Okay, this is like really bad, okay? But he didn't do badly because he was worse at studying the Bible than I did. I wasn't better at studying the Bible. I was just lucky. Well, providentially ordained by God, lucky, okay? <clears throat> So what I want to do is I'm going to pause there, and we'll come back to this story, but this is what I learned later on in life. There's a, a method of studying the Bible called, a lot of times it's called inductive Bible study, or it's the OIA method, the OIA. The, it's observation, interpretation, application. So this is what we go through in class, and this is what, for me personally, has revolutionized my personal study of the Bible. And the best part is that my devotional time has gotten a lot better. So here are the three steps. Oh, this is one quick comment I want to make at the beginning, though. This is not in your notes. This is off to the side. The, the point I want to make right up front is that when I used to think of studying the Bible, I thought of it like sitting on a couch with my bestie, drinking coffee, and just connecting. Okay, guys don't really talk like that. 
It, you know, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, we don't actually say those things. We're like, dude, I want to get together. Okay, you know. But, but you, you know, like you're getting together with your friends and you sit down and it's wonderful and you're close, okay? But I really, in a very similar way, that's what I thought Bible study was. And so I remember one time I was particularly depressed and I told God, I'm going to deal with this. We're going to get this fixed, God. And I went out and I sat with my Bible and I opened it up. Ezekiel 10. And I read it, and it made no sense. And I kept going, and I didn't get anything out of my Bible. I was handling it wrong. And I was also treating my Bible, forgive me for this, like a stiff drink or like a Prozac. I wanted my Bible to make me feel better. Or I wanted my Bible to make me forget. I didn't really want my Bible, or I didn't really want to use my Bible the way God intended it to be used. So usually when we think about our devotions or a personal Bible study time, sometimes we'll say things like, I'm going to go have my time with Jesus. I'm not opposed to that. Okay, that's a great way to talk about it. I'm going to go have my quiet time. That's great. You should be quiet when you're doing it. But the way it should feel many times, if not most of the time, is like I'm sitting down. I know I'm a teacher, so maybe you won't believe me when I say this, but you're sitting down in a classroom ready to learn. I feel like that should be the default position when you study the Bible. If you do that, these other times of real joy and closeness to the Lord will happen automatically. So it's like a teeter-totter. There's some people who they only study the Bible intellectually with their mind, and there's not really much connecting. And there's other people who only want the, like, feeling part of it. I'm I'm trying to push the teeter-totter back this way in our culture a little bit. Okay, here are the three steps. The first one is observation. And then this is a step that is guided by one simple question. What does it say? What does it say? So when I go to read my Bible and I go to study, the first thing I should ask about the passage is, what is this passage saying? I actually don't care at this point what it means. I don't actually want to know what it means. I mean, I I do want to know what it means. But at this point, I just want to know what does it say. So if it's talking about David, what is it saying about David? How long was he around? What was he doing? Like all the basic what questions are what I want to look for. Here is where you're kind of like a collector. You're collecting all the information from the passage that you can. You're trying to put it all in one place. Now once you've done that for a really long time, then you move to interpretation. Interpretation is where you take all that information you got when you're observing, and you take it and you ask this question. What does it mean? What does it mean? An example of where this is helpful is if you think about like Revelation where there's that giant dragon with either ten heads or ten horns. I can't remember. And there's some lady riding in the back. It's just a weird picture. You can take all kinds of notes. Okay, there's this many heads. There's this many horns. There's this kind of rider. This is what's happening. That's observation. You want to know as much as you can Once you've done that, then you want to ask this question, well, what does all that mean? Is there a little dragon coming after me today? If I'm my friend, yes, there's probably a dragon I don't know about, okay? Um, If it says your friends will turn their back on you and they'll come and get you and the people who eat your bread are going to set a trap for you, I can take notes on all that, but then what does it mean? I have to answer that question. But I can't answer the question, what does it mean, until I've spent a lot of time clearly studying what it says. After I've looked at what it says and I've looked at what it means, I have to ask a final question, and that's the application question. What does it mean for?
for me. Sorry, I thought that font was big enough. It's probably not quite big enough. What does it mean for me? This is where we want to make it personal. We want to know how it fits in our life. What would change? What would be different if we did this? And so these are the three steps of Bible study. Now, it's important to know that in some things, in, like there's some things you do in life and it doesn't matter what order you do them in. As long as you get them all done, that's fine. But there are other times where if you don't follow the order step by step, you'll get it wrong. So we're watching, oh, it's a food competition show. Come on, Andy, come on, Andy. The British Baking Show. Okay, that's my wife and I's, it's, we like cooking shows. And it's great, it's lots of British accents and lots of weird British food I've never heard of. And so these people, like the two, like, chefs or whatever, or bakers, will give them a, a recipe and they won't give them much information. These people have to figure it out. And many times, they'll carry out the recipe, but they'll flip the order of two steps in the recipe. And whatever's supposed to look really cool is like this burnt pile of nothing. And so the order matters. Well, in Bible study, it's the same thing. The order you walk through this really is important. So um, it says important, sorry for the typo, because I think your thing says importance. I'm sorry about that. Importance issue. This just ain't an important issue. Unless maybe Julie fixed that. I don't know. Does it say importance? Ah, come on. Come on, Julie. Okay, it's my fault. All right, so number one, the order matters. You have to do application after you do interpretation. You need to do interpretation only once you've done observation. If you do observation for five minutes in a passage you're unfamiliar with, and then you try to interpret it, you followed the order, but you didn't do step one very completely, and your interpretation will be way off. Example, my buddy, he spent 30 minutes studying Obadiah 7. But he really didn't do anything. He made some observations, but he didn't really do much in way of observation because he didn't ask some really important questions. And that's what we want to talk about today. If he'd asked some of these questions, it would have helped him not make the interpretive mistake that he made. Now, in my devotions as a person, many times I ignored this pattern. I didn't really even know it. So I opened my Bible to have a time where I want to know God, and it was weird there are times where the Bible would connect like vividly with my life and my heart and suddenly this book is alive. There are other times, usually in the book of Leviticus, <laughs> where, yeah, see, you know. You know, the, you, you do this thing and you have to sacrifice a heifer and you do this thing and you have to sacrifice a lamb and you do this thing and you have to have two doves and a goat and flower waved in the air. I just, you know, okay. And so I read that, and my devotions are just not really going that well. So I'm doing this Bible reading. I'm trying to learn, and it's, it's not really working. I think all of this goes back to, number one, following the order. Uh, but number two, my contention that observation is the either misunderstood or the forgotten step in Bible study. If I were to ask you before I put this slide up, which one of these three steps do you think we forget the most often? I have a guess that you would, probably most of you would say application because we've all been there. Someone's teaching, they're walking through a passage, and then they get done and they forgot to apply it, right? Or your friend is, has done a study and they, wow, this is really neat, but then you don't apply it. Or it's like James, you know, we look in the mirror of God's word and we see what's on our face and then we look away and it's like we forget, and so most of the time, we'd probably say application. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. But I personally, 
I think the, the step we forget is observation. We don't look long enough and the right way at God's word. So today I would like to focus on observation for a little while and try to give you some practical helps that you could even begin now to implement that would really help your time in God's word. Okay, I'm going to give you five elements of observation. This is from a book, and the book is very hard to see there, but it's called The Knowable Word, like know, like knowledge, like knowing something. The Knowable Word, and it's by Peter Kroll. Peter Kroll, K-R-O-L. It's a really good book. I mean, there's a couple of things. He says, like, kingdom stuff every now and then. You kind of probably wouldn't take the kingdom the way he does, but he doesn't really make a big deal of it. He uses Genesis as part of what he studies, and I don't know where he lands on the age of the earth question. Uh, I, I think he's probably where we are. It's just a, kind of a little confusing. But, I mean, other than those two things, it's a really good book. And what he does is he walks you through this observation, interpretation, application method. And it's very practical. So if you're looking for a book, this is a good one to pick up. The other great thing about this book is he has a website called, like, nobleword.org or com or something like that, and it is full of Bible study helps and tools, worksheets to print off to study the text, recommendations on books to read about books of the Bible. So I'd highly recommend his stuff. But he gives you five elements of observation, and I want to talk about each one of these because if you begin to study these in your own personal life, when it comes to the Bible, you'll start to handle the Bible better. And then I'm going to come back and talk about my Ephesians and my friend's Obadiah verse. And I'm going to show you how if, they had, if I had thought about these five things and my friend had, we would have been way on way better footing than we were when we just read that with no knowledge of the Bible before. So, number one, genre. That's the first element of Bible study. Genre. <clears throat> I believe genre is a French word. I don't speak French. But I think I remember looking up, it's a French word, and all it means is kind. And it's not the kind of kind that means kindness. I literally just said that sentence. I used, how many, kind of kind that means kindness. I, that was impressive. I did not plan that. (laughs) Write that down. No, Uh, it's okay, it's okay. Wow, a triple. Okay, Um, when we say kind, be kind to someone, we're saying like, be nice, be pleasant, don't be rude. When we say what kind of thing it is, we're talking like in types or categories or descriptions. Well, why is that important in the Bible? Well, not every page of Scripture, not every book of the Bible is the same. So this is part of why Ephesians worked okay for me and Obadiah didn't work for my friend. Obadiah is prophecy. It's a different type of book. It has a different purpose. It has a different uh, aim that it's aiming at. Ephesians is a letter. It's a letter actually written to Christians, New Testament Christians anyways. And and so here you have a letter that's very, very similar to my life setting. So if I had just asked, what is the kind or what is the genre, what is the type of word, uh, a section of the Bible I'm studying, I would have realized it's a letter to New Testament Christians. Oh, well then I should be able to apply a lot of this right away to my life. My friend had opened to Obadiah and said, what kind of book is this? And realized that it was prophecy. He would have had a whole host of questions he would have had to answer before he began studying it. So you could probably think of a few. What are some of the questions you would ask if you realize this is a prophetic book? What would you want to know? Who is the prophecy intended for? 
Four points. Well done. That was a good answer. I don't think I know. What's your name? Nice to meet you. Okay, good answer. Now I have to tell everyone it's a good answer. Someone will feel bad. So make sure all the rest of these answers are good, okay? I have no participation trophies here, but we will... I'm just kidding. <clears throat> okay, you'd want to know who the prophecy is to. What else would you want to know if it's a, prophecy, a prophetic book? Yes. <laughs> Four points. What's your name? Sydney, that is really good. Yeah, what are the circumstances? If a prophecy is being sent to or for someone, what is the occasion of that prophecy? There are a lot of questions like this that my friend never asked. If he had, he would have realized the verse he read had nothing to do with his life. That's why I got lucky. I didn't ask any questions. I just happened to be at like a really applicable New Testament verse for Christians. And so I got lucky, you know, in a Baptist providency lucky kind of idea. He did not, I think, of the Lord for this moment right here. Okay, so is it a prophecy? Is it a letter? Is it apocalyptic? Is it a historical book? Is it a narrative, like a story being told? All of those things will affect how much you interpret it and how much it applies to your life. Number two, words. Are the words, like what, what's going on with the words? So are they repeated? Like, if one word is repeated over and over and over and over again, you probably need to know what that word means. I mean, I know there's this one passage where the word the occurred 60 times. Let me, no, okay. Now, <laughs> that just illustrates, some words will be repeated and it's not that. I mean, if the happens 60 times in a chapter, I highly doubt that's it. But when I'm in 1 Corinthians and it says, the God of all comfort who will comfort you in your affliction, that you may comfort other people. And comfort just came up three times, and I think it comes up like six or eight in that whole chapter. If you walk away from that chapter saying, I think I need to have more fun in life, you missed it. <laughs> That's not right. And so just paying attention to the words helps you. Why does it help you? We have creative minds, don't we? Well, some of us do. Some of you are really boring. Uh, but some of you are really creative, and you just have grandiose ideas, and that's great. Until you come to the Bible, and you don't ask, what did the Bible mean when it said these things? And you're like riffing off these great ideas. And that's, that's okay. I mean, it can be okay, but not when you're asking what the meaning of a word is. And so you want to pay attention to repeated words. But sometimes it's not repeated. It's a key word. So I think of Ephesians chapter 2. It describes all of these situa all this situation that we were in as human beings. We're sinners. We are condemned to go to hell. There is no hope. We are blind. We are far from God. We are not near. And then what does it say? But God. And then everything in the passage shifts. I, that's, not a, that's like a pivoting word in the chapter. Something was happening, and here's a huge shift. And now look at all this. Paying attention to those kinds of words will highlight in your mind what God is trying to get across. Um, Technical, are there technical terms? In Romans, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he, you know, and it, there's terms like, what's justified mean? What does sanctified mean? There's some theological words. How are you going to find those out? Are you going to Google that? Are you going to check it out on Wikipedia? Please not. <laughs> Please don't go to Wiki for that. <laughs> but do you have any sort of resource in your home where you could look up word like that? Do you have like some sort of a book that would help you walk through that? If you don't know what justification is and you're reading a whole chapter about justification, how are you going to understand it? 
So do you see how if I want to sit down and have my time with Jesus and it starts talking about justification and I don't know what it is, but I'm not prepared to be a student and study, do you see how my devotions are going to like wilt? Like it's not going to work. So having tools is very helpful. Looking up the words. Grammar, the verb tense. Oh, verbs, I always say this, it's the most overused joke in my freshman class, but verbs, that's where all the action is. Yes! It's good every time. Sorry, former FBBC students who heard that like 60 times already. But seriously, um, you, you should look at all the verbs. Now, what I mean is this. Sometimes the New Testament will describe who you were that's past tense. And then if you're not paying attention, it will shift and say, but you are, and all of a sudden you're in the present tense. What if it describes you in the present tense in a way that you don't think you look like? Like what if it says you're perfect or you're glorified or you're holy or you're sanctified and you're saying, I don't really feel like that. Why does it do that? Well, that's a question you've got to search out. You, that's a question you've got to Go and do some study. Ask a believer. Ask your pastor. Do you see where all of this, you get the questions and then you go find the answers and you search them out in the scriptures. You don't just kind of sit here and hope that it'll osmosis kind of float into your mind or something. So there's a lot of study involved in this, but I think it's really helpful. So there are times where I was prepping to teach Sunday school. This is great. Remember I said I was going to go out and deal with God and I opened my Bible and he, it, it didn't make any sense to me. I was particularly depressed at that time in my life. And I wanted God to make me feel better, and I spent two hours trying to flip pages in my Bible to get some bump, like emotional bump, and I couldn't. It was really odd. I mean, I was trying to have my devotions, trying to have this close moment with God. It didn't happen. What's wrong with God? A better question would have been, what's wrong with me? Well, fast forward like 15 years. I'm teaching Sunday school on Romans. We're somewhere in either five, six, or seven. I can't remember. I know you're like, that's like three chapters. It was somewhere in there. And I was studying, and there's a verse where it says, the love of God has been poured in your hearts. And, it, you know, what does that mean? Like, is it my love for God has been put in my heart? Like, I love God and it's in my heart now because God put it there? Or God loves me and he puts it in my heart so I know that he loves me. Does that make sense? I didn't know which way it was. Well, I'm only asking that question because I have to teach it and someone's going to ask me the question, so I better know. Normally, I'd be like, well, I'll just get the big idea, you know, whatever. God loves us, that's good enough. So I read a book that talks about that passage, and the author explains, no, it's saying that if you in your heart love God, he had to put that in there first, because apart from his action, we would never love God. Something weird that I didn't expect happened. I had this moment with the Lord. I felt close to him, I was so thankful for him, I was praising him, and I immediately was confident in my salvation. For years, I'd kind of wondered, am I saved, am I not? Those weird feelings you get every now and then. But look, I knew that I loved God. I'm not perfectly, but I do love him. If that's true, God had to put that there. I must be his child because he's, that's the result of salvation. Do you see how I was searching out an answer in the text and suddenly the Spirit is convincing me and edifying me and encouraging me. And it came through study, not through a moment with a giant pop and candy bar and sitting on a... I was in Johnson, Iowa on those tanks at Camp Dodge. I was looking out over the city. It's very emo. I don't... I was a very weirdo. Okay. So grammar, verbs. Yes, that I'm sure all that had to do with verbs. Okay. Moving on. Structure. <laughs> Sorry. This is serious. 
Okay, the structure is important. How does the passage outline itself? This is a really good practice that you may even want to start doing on your own. When you decide, I really want to study out a book of the Bible. I really want to know, like, say, Colossians or Philemon or Ruth or some book like that. Try to make an outline of it. Try to start and just outline the book, like what is said, and just try to figure out how you can do it. Even if you're wrong, that's okay. Well, I mean, it's not wrong, okay to be wrong, but it's okay because now you can go and look at someone else's outline and adjust. And what happens is when you outline a book, what are you looking at in that book? You're looking at the structure. It forces you to say, how is this laid out? So think about Romans. Romans starts off with Paul saying, this is the power of God. It is the gospel to save sinners. And what does he say in verse 18 right after that? The ra- exactly, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And then for the next two chapters, he talks about the unrighteous Gentile. He talks about the unrighteous Jew who thinks they're better than the Gentile, but they are just as bad as the Gentile. And then he talks about the unrighteous everybody in the world. Well, what after that? He says, this is, this is the gospel. This is that you believe and you're saved. And he talks about Abraham. And he goes on. He's, he lays out this idea of how you go from being unsaved to saved. And then in chapter 6, he just made the point that the grace of God is so amazing that every time you sin, it is poured out on your behalf. No matter how many times. When someone sins against me, there's a limit to how many times I'll forgive them. I know it shouldn't be there, but it is because I'm a sinner, and if you cross me too many times, that's it. I'm done. But with God, that impulse is never present. Every time you sin, his grace pours out on you. And Paul anticipates a question. He says, I know my audience is going to say, well, if every time I sin, God's grace abounds, and God's grace is awesome, shouldn't I just sin the rest of my life? What does he say? May it never be. It's really strong in Greek. It's like, no, 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 absolutely not. Yeah, and then what does he do next? He says, no, you can't do that because you're not under the law. Well, if we're not under the law and we're under grace, should we sin? No, and he arranges it. Question, answer it. Question you might think is right? No, let me tell you why. Question, and it's a question, answer. Question, answer, question, answer. All the way to 12. In 12, he says, this is how to live. If you know that when you pick up Romans for your devotions, that observation of the structure is kind of in your mind. It's, it's almost like rearranged your mental furniture. So, you know, decorating. So you're decorating your mind. Isn't that great? This is, li- I'm sorry, I'm just doing such a bad job here. <clears throat> so, but yeah, it rearranges your mind. And it gets it ordered properly. And then guess what? You'll remember more in the book. You'll understand it more. It changes your outlook and your vision for life when you do that. Okay, structure. And then lastly, the mood. (laughs) The mood. The feel of the passage. I don't have these passages ready. Um, Hold on, actually, I might be able to pull it up right here. But there are some passages where (laughs) how you read it is really important. And if you're not paying attention to the mood, you kind of might miss the point. So let me just really quick here. Yeah, I can't find it. 
Okay, sorry, I have all these on a slide and I forgot. So there's a verse where God tells the Galatians, remember what happened in Galatia? Galatians got saved, they heard the gospel and they believed, and then these super apostles came and said, you know, Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about. Yeah, you can get saved. You still have to keep the law and you definitely have to be circumcised. And they say, oh, you're right. We better do all that so we can get saved. And Paul hears of this and says, back to them, he says, he writes them a letter, he says, oh, um, you, you foolish Galatians, you know, who bewitched you, you know, to, to abandon the gospel that you so readily accepted? <laughs> that is not the mood. <laughs> you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Like, there's a tone behind it of Paul scolding them for so quickly turning away from the gospel. You know, when Jesus saw the Pharisees and says, oh, it's been so good to see you. I just want to let you know, I, you guys are like a brood of vipers. I've never met a better brood of vipers. Wow, the most brutish of vipers. You, that's you guys. Good job. Is that how he says that to him? Now, I don't want to speak for Jesus. I don't know. But I definitely don't think the tone is one of encouragement. I'm going to give away, how many, is there anyone who's a current student in Introduction to Bible Study at Faith? There's one. Nina? You need to leave the room. No. <laughs> but I'm swearing you to secrecy. So uh, there's these plaques you can buy. I should have brought it. I have a plaque and I have a friendship necklace. And it says, the Lord watch between you and me as we go our separate ways. It's like that verse when your friend moves away. And so it's on, it's on greeting cards. You like give it to your friend. The Lord will watch between us because you're moving away, you know. And uh, it's on a plaque and it says, the Lord watch between you and me as we go our separate ways. And you put it right next to your door so when people leave, it's like God's watching over them. You go to Genesis 31, and you read that in context, and this is the context. Laban, Jacob's father-in-law, who's a liar and a cheat, found out that Jacob is fleeing with his daughter and his granddaughters and grandkids. And Laban says, uh-uh. And he goes to chase him down, probably not to give him a hug goodbye. Because the night before he's about to catch him, God comes to him in a dream and says, Laban? Don't lay a hand on Jacob, which makes me think maybe Laban was going to maybe kill him. I don't know. So Laban overtakes Jacob because Laban's on horseback with his crew, and you know Jacob's got his grandma, and, you know all the little kids, the old. I mean, he's got the whole family, and it's like they're going kind of slow. You know, in the mall when it's like a whole family, and they're like, <laughs> I just part. I need to go. You know, it's like that, except they're running away for their lives. And so Laban comes to Jacob, and what does he say? God told me not to touch you, not to lay a hand on you. But why are you stealing my kids? Okay? And they have a little... And then they say, okay, that's it, fine. You go your way, I'll go my way. We're putting an altar of stones here, and we're going to have a covenant, and the Lord watch between you and me as we go our separate ways. Let's put that on a greeting card. <laughs> but that's the point. You don't get the mood when you read that one little verse. Jay Adams, a Christian counselor from the early Christian counselors movement, calls this plaque-itis. We put the verse on a plaque and we don't have the context. Do you understand? That's like a theological death threat. My dear friend, you're moving away. I'm going to miss you. Here's a theological death threat for you. If you harm any of my relatives, God will get you. Bye. Okay? Do you understand the folly? 
But you would catch that even if you didn't know the context of Jacob and Laban too well, if you didn't understand ancient Near Eastern customs, if you didn't understand those things, in the context, when it's a threat, the mood would come through very clearly. And so if you were to take these five elements and maybe write them in the cover of your Bible, you know, or maybe make a bookmark, five elements of observation, and put it in your Bible for your Bible reading, and then as you go through reading your Bible to do your devotions, look for them. I guarantee you it would help you. The tone in Obadiah, the mood in Obadiah, is, <laughs> it's bad. It's a condemnation of a nation that's trying to get Israel. That's not to my buddy whose friends and him are having a little kerfuffle. It's a, it's a threat from God against Edom. The mood would help you catch that. The type of poetry would help you get that. So let's do this next. Let's actually try it. So you got a little chart <clears throat> on your notes, and let's just compare these two passages. Ephesians 5.1, imitate God like children who are loved by a parent. And Obadiah, hey, Edom, your friends and allies that you're all excited about, they're going to get you, they're going to stab you in the back, and you're going to get it. Okay? <clears throat> Let's lose. What is the genre of Ephesians? What is it? It's a letter. And it's important to know that this is a letter to a church. So if you had a letter, like, say, from Moses, I don't know. It's like the Amalekites or something. And it was recorded in the scriptures. I don't think I would ever take that to the bank as something that applies to me because I'm not Amalekite and I'm not Moses. I'm not an Israelite. But the, a letter to a church, guess what? I'm in the church. I'm a New Testament Christian. And it's a really good possibility that if that's a timeless truth, that applies to me. You know, if it's Paul telling Timothy to take care of his stomach because he has stomach ailments. Well, I don't have stomach ailments. That doesn't apply to me. But if this is a principle that all Christians ought to be doing, guess what? That applies to me. And it's very likely that in the New Testament that'll happen. What is Obadiah? It's a prophecy to Edom. Edom was a, like a, a relative of Israel. It was a neighboring country. They kind of go back to Lot. And Israel was, had gone into captivity, and Edom was, like, mocking them and saying, ha-ha. And all, like, their life, they'd always been, like, a, trying to, like, raid Israel and do bad things to Israel and wish evil on Israel. And so this is a prophecy to them as a nation saying, you know, you feel like you're sitting pretty right now. You feel like you're very comfortable because you have all these ally setups and connections with all these countries around you. But Edom, you're not so safe. And those allies that you're putting your trust in, probably as opposed to God, which is what they should be doing, they're going to turn their back on you and become a thorn in your side. So don't be so arrogant against your brothers who are going into captivity. Again, do you see how that makes a huge difference, which one applies to me and which one doesn't apply to my friend? Okay, words. What's the key word in Ephesians 5.1? <laughs> Imitators. What does it mean to imitate? Like, i got to know what that means. If I think imitate means punch in the face, be a puncher in the face of God. Like, you know, you see I'm saying? Like, if you had that wrong, the whole thing. Now, that's, I know, it's nonsensical. No one would think that. But in Obadiah 7, it said friends. It said your friends will turn their back on you. Well, what does friends mean in that section? My buddy thought, oh, 
the Bible is talking about my friends. But a real, this is a tip for Bible study. He was reading the NIV, the 84. It's, and so what you would, I would always say is if you don't know like Greek or Hebrew, get like two or three translations to read when you study. So get a New King James, get an ESV, get an NIV. You know, if you're an NIV or if you're a NASB, get a couple more <clears throat> because no other Bible translation says friends there. They say people you are at peace with. And as a country, that makes sense. So it'd be like, if it was America, be careful, America, because you got these ally things going on with Canada and Mexico, but watch your back. They're going to get you. And, you know, like, that'd be kind of what it might be like. Well, I would never read that and think, oh, man, my friends are going to get me. But that's because I understand in the context what friends means. Okay, the grammar. In Ephesians 5.1, it is a present tense command. It's like, do this now. Do this right this minute. This is a command, and it's now. What is the grammar? Of, we're just talking the verbs. We're not talking any other words here, but what is the grammar verbally in Obadiah? Well, it's all future tense. What's happening is, a, is going to happen yet in the future. It's not yet happening. So it's not a present thing. So it's something you're kind of looking for. So my friend was kind of right there. If it was talking about his friends, he's now thinking any time now this could happen. But it wasn't a present thing. Maybe he should look into a little more. All right, structure. All I'm going to say is read more than one verse. Sorry, this just gets me going. Each of us, all we did was read one verse. In fact, my youth leader told me to only read one verse. I'm not opposed to that if you're a youth leader, but make sure it's a verse that directly applies so someone doesn't get this wrong idea. Uh, there's, a Bible, there's an apologist I follow named Greg Kokel, and he says there is only one rule for Bible study. Never read a verse. Which sounds at first like, what? But what he means is always read at least a paragraph or a chapter even better. That way you get the context. You can't make errors like this. Okay, what would I say about Obadiah 7? The same thing. <laughs> read more than one verse. <laughs> That was part of my problem. You know, when I flip open to like, you know, I want my emotional bump, I want to feel better, and it's, you know. Daniel 2.17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions. I should make the matter known to my friends. You know, like, you can't do that. You've got to read more than one verse. And if you're in like Lamentations or some other book, it's going to get really weird really fast. Just read more than one verse and you'll pick up on the genre and the context. Okay, and then lastly, what's the mood in Ephesians? The mood is a command, but I would say this. Sometimes when you hear command, you think like kind of this like despotic leader kind of looking down their nose, you do this. Is that the tone in Ephesians? It's hard to say, but I think, I don't think it is. I think it's more of an exhortation command like, beloved, look at what's happened to you. You're not who you used to be, so... Stop and be an imitator of God. Don't imitate the world. Imitate God. So I think that's the kind of tone. What's the tone in Obadiah? It's a condemnation. God is condemning Edom for their horrible actions. Well, I mean, when my friend interpreted that, he thought he should look out for his friends, but the whole point of the passage was someone else being condemned. He's not being condemned in that passage. So I think these five tips are helpful. Okay, just two final thoughts. They'll take a little bit, a couple minutes here, but I think I got one minute left and then Jill will throw things at me. Uh, <clears throat> number one, aim for a timeless truth. 
aim for timeless truth. Every week, almost every week, my pastor says, the timeless truth is, which calls our attention to the fact that in this verse, in this Bible, in this chapter, there is a truth that actually applies to us right now. Aim for that. Is there a timeless truth in Obadiah? I think there is, but it's going to take a while to unpack how we would get that. Is there a timeless truth over in Ephesians? Yeah, and it's... Okay, that's my timer. Oops, that's not... Okay, hold on. There we go. Mario. Yeah. Uh, so there's a timeless truth, right? Okay, so aim for that. We'll talk about that more in the, if you come for the next session. And then lastly, invest in a Bible study tool. Um, I think like uh, commentaries, study about... Oh, here, I have actually pictures. There, a study Bible. There, a commentary. Or there, a Bible dictionary. So a study Bible is really nice. If you don't own a study Bible or yours is pretty old and it's not a more updated one, I would recommend it. So I have a Ryrie, which is like 20 years old. And it's, it's good, it really is. What it says is reliable. It's just there's not a lot of notes. Since then, study Bibles have really improved. So the CSB has recently come out, and the nice thing about it is there's lots of notes, tons of notes, usually at the bottom of the page, and they explain stuff that might be questionable or confusing. The nice thing about the CSB is it takes a young earth creation view. It is a kind of an eschatology that's closer to ours. The ESV study Bible is old earth and covenant. There's a lot of problems with it. But I mean like the MacArthur study Bible is a good option. But you, you should have something like that. If you already have a study Bible, aim for a good commentary set. The Bible Knowledge Commentary is a great place to start because then when you have these questions, you can look it up. My buddy was like, man, my friends are going to get me. I need to go see what that commentary says. Oh, this is talking about Edom. Never mind. Maybe not. Okay. And then lastly, maybe a Bible dictionary would be good. You can look up theological terms that you might find. Okay. I think we're done, and Jill's going to come up and say something maybe. Or I'm just going to dismiss everyone. Or I'm going to 